Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you all for coming and a warm welcome from both the New York University Abu Dhabi Institute that's graciously hosting this um, event, as well as the philosophy program here at New York University Abu Dhabi um, that's, that's otherwise hosting um, Professor Pete Adamson here for the length of the week. Um, Peter Adamson, um, I think, could as plausibly as anybody claim to be the most famous historian of philosophy working on the planet today. Now, he would never make this claim, um, but we're very, um, very proud and glad to have him over. Um, just as an indication of the kinds of, of things that obviously made him famous, this um, today at lunchtime, he gave a presentation on the role of dialectic and dialectical methodology in Alexander of Aphrodisius's views on fate and providence. Now, if that doesn't immediately grab you, then I don't know what will. Um, the story is a little bit um, more, more complex than that. Um, Peter first made a reputation for himself as a, a historian, a, a scholar, and above all, a philosophical interrogator of, of early Arabic philosophy, the first phase in, in um, classical Arabic philosophy. His first book, The Arabic Plotinus, is the basic reference work on the subject um, and, and concerns the um, Arabic translations of the Greek philosopher, late Greek philosopher Plotinus and the many creative uses to which Plotinus is, is put in the Arabic tradition. Um, around the time that, that he published this, he had um, recently began as a lecturer at um, King's College London, where he made the full career progression from lecturer to reader to full professor in something that must have been record time, and um, he became full professor in 2009. Um, besides the Plotinus book, he had by then published an equally um, foundational work on the first philosopher of the Arabs, Al-Kindi, um, co-edited the Cambridge Companion to Arabic Philosophy, which is probably the still the single um, best reference work to, to, to aid in um, an, as an introduction to the field, as well as um, found, um, funding and institutional setting for a highly successful series of workshops um, delineating the many centuries of Arabic philosophy, um, each workshop resulting in an edited volume. So, having ascended to the pinnacle of, 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 of a sort of a, um, academia, having achieved everything that there is to achieve, um, being a full professor at um, King's College London, um, while, while not yet having turned 40, if I'm, I'm, I'm not mistaken, thereabouts, yes, um, what does Peter decide to do? Well, he told me that he had decided to write a book on Arazi to complete his trilogy of early Arabic philosophy. This is um, the Razis of, of Latin renown, the famous philosopher, physician, and potentially um, something of a, of a free, free thinker. Now, seven years later, what, 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 what happened? Well, we're still waiting. We're still waiting for that because something, just a tiny project kind of inserted itself along the way. Peter decided to start a podcast. It's all the rage among young people these days, I hear. Um, only his, philosophy, his podcast um, assumed the title History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, a, a title that's in equal parts ridiculous and awesome, as I think everybody will agree. And I think that Peter quickly seized 
both of these aspects of, of, of the project with both hands. So um, the History of Philosophy podcast, Without Any Gaps, has now expanded to nearly 300 episodes. Um, the ancient part took him a good, good handful of years. He then um, blazed his way through the early, uh, earlier phase and classical phase of, of Arabic philosophy, but I do not think he's quite done, done with that yet, if I'm, I'm correct. I think there may be... Hmm? Oh, Arabic philosophy is done. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I have been hanging on, on 19th century um, uh, sort of materials. But then, of course... Um, He's in dialogue with, with people, including our very own Professor John Arden Ganeri, and, and that resulted in now the History of Philosophy um, podcast project expanding into the realm of, of Indian philosophy. Um, there are other world philosophies, I understand, in the pipeline. Medieval philosophy is, is now advanced roughly to, to William Ockham. That's to say the turn of the 12th, 13th century. So I fully assume that this is a lifetime that, that you have ahead of you, um, but because the history of philosophy, of course, doesn't exactly end. Um, there'll be history of philosophy um, in 2014 to cover eventually, and so on. Um, if you want to do this without any gaps, that's, that's got to be the ambition, right? Um, nonetheless, in, in the middle, and this is, of course, what, what now um, somehow justifies my claim that, that um, Peter's name is probably known um, among non-philosophers or, or non-professional philosophers more than anybody else. The History of Philosophy podcast, which I recommend to anybody um, on, on, on this planet with any intellectual interest whatsoever, is a fabulously entertaining as well as educating educational tool and has been recognized by such by nearly every philosophy curriculum um, in, the, in the English-speaking world and as well as beyond. Um, throughout all of this, Peter has nonetheless managed to keep in place an extremely prolific academic career. Um, two thick volumes of, of his collected essays appeared in just um, a few years ago. He has translated the philosophical works of Al-Kindi together with Peter Forman, um, a work for which um, the translators received the King Abdullah International Award for Translation. And um, I understand that, that the Razi book eventually will, will appear. The podcast um, uh, manuscripts have been turned into, at this point, three, three books um, with, with, again, more in the pipeline. We're very pleased to have um, Peter here present on how to um, uh, write a history of philosophy in the Islamic world without any, any gaps. Now that I hear that it's all done, um, we'll hear how that, that was supposed to have gone. Thank you very much. Okay, so thank you very much for that extremely generous introduction. I think I'm going to um, take Tunley around with me everywhere I go from now on and have him introduce me every time I give a talk. It's like, that was the nicest introduction I've ever had. Um, and thank you very much to Tunley and everyone else uh, here at NYU for the invitation to come speak to you. Uh, as Tunley has already said, this talk has a lot to do with my podcast, and in particular how I decided to go about covering this topic history of philosophy in the Islamic world without any gaps. And uh, although it's in a way uh, something that's generated out of this challenge of doing that in the podcast, I think it is also my message about how the, how the field of study should be covered by other scholars, but also how everyone should understand this topic. Um, right, so to go back to something Tanley said, uh, just a few minutes ago, I launched the podcast in 2010. 
And when I launched it, so it's appeared weekly since then, that's why there's so many episodes. And when I launched it, I was thinking of it as a kind of harmless little hobby that might, once it was successful, might have a few hundred listeners. So I didn't really think it was a big deal. I kind of thought maybe my colleagues at work wouldn't find out I was doing it. And I was sort of hoping they wouldn't because I thought they might think it was silly. I was also a little bit worried that my college would get angry at me for wasting my time on this podcast when I should be teaching and doing research. Um, this was before impact became a big thing in British academia. Um, and, uh, so I, and I also just in general massively underestimated what I was proposing to do in every way. Um, and as a result of that, I cannot tell you how surprised I am to be standing here giving you a talk about this subject seven years later, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, so I'm a philosopher, and since I'm a philosopher, I like to define terms before I start. So since the topic that I'm going to be discussing is history of philosophy in the Islamic world without any gaps, um, I'm going to tell you what I mean by philosophy in the Islamic worlds, and then I'm going to tell you what I mean by without any gaps, and then I'm going to give you a few examples of what that means, and then it will turn out that that's the whole talk. So by the time I've explained the title, the talk will be over. So first of all, terminological issue. You might have noticed, um, this slide has been up here long enough, so you might have noticed that I'm calling it history of philosophy in the Islamic world. And this, to my delight, seems to be the way that increasingly people are starting to refer to this uh, topic of study. For quite a while, there was a kind of debate between two camps who had different ideas about how to designate the subject under consideration here. One idea was to call it Islamic philosophy, and another idea was to call it Arabic philosophy. I used to be on the Arabic philosophy side, which you can tell from the fact that I co-edited a Cambridge Companion to Arabic philosophy. And in my opinion, both of these titles have advantages, but also disadvantages. The most obvious advantage of calling it Islamic philosophy is that it highlights an important feature of the tradition we're concerned with here, or maybe traditions that we're concerned with here, namely the religious context of Islam. It's very clear that many, if not all, in fact, not all, but many of the thinkers that we'll, I'll be mentioning um, wanted to use philosophy to respond directly to the revelation of the Quran and uh, the Hadith and more generally uh, the tr traditional ideas about Islamic uh, faith. So that's an important feature of the tradition. This title picks that out. But that advantage is also in a way a disadvantage because calling it Islamic philosophy can have the effect of suggesting that everybody who we're interested in here had that as their primary consideration. So it's, it sort of um, suggests that the point of Islamic philosophy was only to use philosophy to understand Islam. And even thinkers whose primary aim was to do that, so for example, Al-Kindi, who I've done a lot of work on, wrote numerous works where that's not on the agenda at all. So for example, you have quite a few works by Kindi, some of which are lost, but um, we still have some that are about things like logic, categorizing Aristotle's works and explaining what they're about, um, ethics, and none of these works may make even implicit allusion to the Quran. Uh, 
to say nothing of other thinkers in the Islamic world who do philosophy and are not even Muslims. And to me, this is the biggest problem with using the phrase Islamic philosophy. As you'll see, the, the field of study, as I understand it, includes a lot of Jewish and Christian authors. And in fact, traditionally, that they've been excluded from history, intellectual history done in this area. And as I'm going to be trying to argue throughout this lecture, that's a big mistake. If you call, if you use the phrase Islamic philosophy, you're kind of in advance assuming that you won't be covering Christians like Yahya ibn Adi, Jews like Maimonides, and so on. So to me, this is a lethal objection against the phrase Islamic philosophy. And so I don't use it. I'm, actually, I do sometimes, but that's because I'm being lazy or I don't have time to explain my worries about it. But when I'm being careful, I don't use it. So what about Arabic philosophy? So as I said, um, this is in, in some ways the um, solution I preferred until more recently. And uh, that's for several reasons. One, several reasons. One is that it avoids the problem just mentioned because the Jews and Christians that we're interested in mostly, although not always, wrote in Arabic. Um, and it also picks out, just as Islamic philosophy picks out something that's accurate about the tradition, namely that Islamic religious culture is often important for understanding the text in question. So Arabic philosophy picks out something important, which is that in some ways, and I'll get to qualifications to this later, in some ways, philosophy in the Islamic world begins with a translation movement from Greek into Arabic. So um, this is a pretty familiar story, which a lot of you may already know. In the late 8th and then 9th, early 10th centuries, there was a massive endeavor uh, that was supported from the highest levels of society in the Abbasid Empire to translate Greek science and philosophy into Arabic. A lot of money was put into it, and it was very successful to the point where in the 10th century, if you lived in Baghdad, you could read all the same Aristotle we can read today, with maybe a couple of exceptions. And people usually think of philosophy in the Islamic world as being generated by this translation, translation movement. So calling it Arabic philosophy kind of refers us to this, this um, genesis in the Greek-Arabic translation movement. However, again, there are some disadvantages. The most obvious is that some philosophical works that we're interested in were not written in Arabic. And in fact, um, the calling it Arabic philosophy tends to support something that I'm against, which I'll be talking about later as well, which is focusing only on early philosophy in the Islamic world. As the tradition develops, we increasingly see that philosophers write philosophy in Persian uh, or both Arabic and Persian. So to take an example, the famous Safavid philosopher Mullah Sadra, who I'll be mentioning later, he wrote in both Persian and Arabic, and that's actually quite typical um, in the Safavid period. Um, there's also philosophical works in Syriac and in Hebrew. So again, this is a kind of misleading expression, Arabic philosophy. There's one other thing which is kind of a spurious problem, but is still a problem, which is that people are always complaining when they hear the phrase Arabic philosophy that most philosophers, or at least many philosophers who worked in the Islamic tradition were not Arabs. And although this is true, because actually um, a, 
most of the philosophers who spring to mind were in a broad sense Persian. And in fact, this is why Al-Kindi, this early philosopher who's already been mentioned, was called the philosopher of the Arabs. Um, it may even have been a, a way of designating him to sort of say, to, by non-Arabs, to say, well, he's your only philosopher, which would be a gross exaggeration. But it's still true that not all philosophers in the Islamic world were Arabs. But of course, this is irrelevant because it's, the idea isn't to call it Arab philosophy. The idea is to call it Arabic philosophy, and Arabic is a language. They don't mean the same thing, but at least that's according to me as a native speaker of English. I think this is clearly just wrong, but people are always getting upset about it. So rather than having this argument with people over and over and telling them that they don't know English, I prefer to not call it Arabic philosophy. So that's why I call it philosophy in the Islamic world. And what I mean by that, to go back to my title slide, is just this. So wherever we have, it's really a geographical designation, and it refers to lands under Muslim dominion. And of course, that geographical designation shifts over time. So this is roughly the, um, the scope of the Islamic world during the sort of uh, classical period that um, Tanali referred to before. Um, but later on, it, in, it doesn't include Spain and does include India. So effectively, what I'm suggesting is that we should have a concept in our minds here, philosophy in the Islamic world, and what that should mean is any philosophy that was done in lands under Muslim political dominion. That's the topic, okay? So um, this is a little slide I like to call shameless self-promotion. Uh, so down here you have the, in case you're, uh, in case you haven't all Googled it on your smartphones already, this is where you can find the podcast. And the podcast also appears as a series of books. You guys came at exactly the right time because you get to hear the most important information. So the, the, the podcast is totally free, by the way. The books aren't, but they're very reasonably priced. And they're available from Oxford University Press. And, and the reason I'm putting it up is, of course, so that you'll buy the books but it's also because I want to give you um, a sense. I didn't know that Tanley was going to say so much about the project, so I wanted to give you some context. So this is, this is the project that I've been doing. Um, and really the point of it, as you can see from the title at the top of each book, is to tell the entire history of philosophy without any gaps, i.e. without leaving anything out. So what does that mean? It, so, and I'm mostly, of course, I'm going to be telling you about philosophy in the Islamic world without any gaps. But first, I have to explain to you what I mean by doing history of philosophy in general without any gaps, since that's the wider project. So one obvious thing is that we don't leave out cultures where philosophy was done. And in particular, we don't leave out the Islamic world, which, of course, is often skipped over in surveys of um, philosophy, not here at NYU if only because Tanali is here, but in most universities in the Western world, at least, you cannot study Islamic philosophy. It's not mentioned at all, and if it is mentioned, it might be kind of tucked into a course on medieval philosophy that hardly anyone is taking. So you can very easily go to a top research university in the United States or Europe, do a major in philosophy, and never hear the name of a single philosopher who worked in the Islamic world. In fact, I would almost say that's more likely than not to happen. But even as bad as things are, the situation for philosophy in the Islamic world is not nearly as bad as the situation for other traditions like Chinese and Indian philosophy, uh, or 
were still African philosophy, Latin American philosophy, Korean philosophy, Russian philosophy. These are all cultures that have produced philosophical figures and texts, and none of them are ever covered in sort of sweeping overviews of history of philosophy. Um, instead, the history of philosophy is usually covered like this, and I'm, hopefully I'm going to have to go away from the microphone, um, but what I'm going to do now is a physical demonstration of the way the history of philosophy is usually done. And to do this demonstration, I want you to imagine that the aisle here in the middle is the, is the history of human civilization since the 6th century BC, and the, la the railing up there at the back of the room is now, okay? And I'm going to stop when we get to a figure who is usually covered in philosophy classes, in, at least in North America and Europe, okay? So, this is the 6th century BC. leading, and one of the reasons why people get away with it is by excluding these other cultures, uh, because of course some of the figures that are being left out are figures that would fill in that gap. But of course there are many figures even in what you might call Western philosophy, so for example pretty much all of medieval philosophy with the possible exception of Aquinas, who's covered sometimes, so he's 13th century, so he'd be around the middle of the room. Um, really, the entirety of medieval philosophy is ignored in most general overviews, popular overviews of the history of philosophy, and uh, introductory courses on the history of philosophy, where you jump from Aristotle to maybe Aquinas and then Descartes. Now, actually, I have some sympathy for teaching and conveying the history of philosophy that way, because time is limited, attention is limited, curiosity is limited, and it's better to maybe sort of do the highlights, you might think, than to not do it at all. Um, especially if you're in a situation where you're trying to cover the entire history of philosophy, let's say, in a 12-week course for undergraduates. So and, and in, in a way, this is why I did the podcast, because I thought the podcasts give me the opportunity to go as slow as I want to, and boy, oh boy, do I want to go slow. So that's why it's taken me 300 episodes to get to William of Ockham, who would be like somewhere between week two and week three in, in a 12-week course on the history of philosophy. But there's, I think it's, it's not only that there are kind of major figures along the way, like say Augustine or Avicenna um, or um, Nagarjuna, the Buddha. By the way, Janardhan should be here, I think. All right, so Janardhan and I are actually covering Indian philosophy on the podcast now. So 300 episodes includes the ones on Indian philosophy that we've been doing recently. So that's up to about 30 episodes. So I'm, I'm actually doing Indian philosophy with Janardhan now. I have a co-author for Africana philosophy, which will begin whenever Indian ends. So next time, some, about this time next year. And I'm hoping to do Chinese philosophy after that. Um, 
But even if, as I was just saying, even if you focus on Western philosophy, um, I don't think you can understand figures like Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, Descartes, Kant, etc., without understanding the people they're responding to. So there are so-called minor figures throughout, scattered throughout the history of philosophy who you should know about even if you only care about these big figures, right? So even if all you care about is Kant, you might want to know who Kant was reading. And Kant wasn't only reading Descartes. He was reading a bunch of people none of us have ever heard of. And Plato was reading all the pre-Socratics. Avicenna was reading early Islamic philosophers and also late ancient philosophers that most of us have never heard of and so on. So even if you made the mistake of thinking that only the biggest, biggest, biggest figures were worth reading, I think it would still make sense to cover minor figures. But I actually also don't really believe in this distinction between major and minor figures. So there are certainly really impressive philosophers who have a big impact on the history of philosophy, but there are more than seven of them. There are hundreds of them. And anyone who tells you that they've restricted their survey of the history of philosophy to only the most important ones is lying because if it only took them one semester or one year, then they didn't manage to cover all the important ones either. So for example, if you're doing um, medieval philosophy, you, and you're only covering the major figures, you should certainly cover Henry of Ghent, Duns Scotus, and William of Ockham. And that's just in 30 year, a 30-year period around the turn of the 13th, 14th century. Another problem I have with this is that only covering major or famous figures effectively means that you'll never cover any female philosophers. Because there are, there are certainly women philosophers before the 20th century, but there are no women philosophers in any of these traditions who are considered major. Uh, there are plenty of women philosophers who are on a par with these kind of more minor figures who are important for understanding the history of philosophy. And I've covered a lot of them in the podcast. This is one of my favorites, actually. Her name is Marguerite Poretz. She was put to death for her teachings at the beginning of the 14th century in Paris. Um, and so we kind of lose a whole part of the history of philosophy, namely one gender. We, use every, we lose everything that women have contributed to the history of philosophy if we do it in this with gaps method rather than the without any gaps method. Okay, by the way, I have a lot to say about women in the history of philosophy. I just gave a lecture about it in Alain last night. So I won't say anything more about it now, but it's something I'd be eager to discuss if you want to ask later. Okay, so now moving on to the Islamic world. So let's sort of rewind a little bit and think, well, let's assume that we're taking philosophy in the Islamic world seriously as a discipline, as a topic of interest, and let's think about what it would mean to cover it with gaps. So I've already said that in a sense we're addressing a gap and filling a gap just by covering philosophy in the Islamic world at all. But... It's, not, it's certainly not, I mean, obviously I'm not the first person to come along and say we should study Islamic philosophy. Um, and here we need to maybe distinguish between the way that philosophy in the Islamic world has been dealt with in Europe and the United States and Canada, and the way it's dealt with in the Muslim world in general uh, over the last hundred years, which of course varies from one country to another. So the way that um, the history of Islamic world is studied in Egypt is very different from the way it's studied in Iran. 
what I'm about to say is more or less relevant to the way it's done in North America and Europe. So if you look at scholarship in English, French, and German, Italian, Spanish, uh, that's been produced really up until very recently, like until 10 years ago, what you'll see is a lot of focus on a very restricted range of figures, one of whom is someone I've worked on a lot, namely Akindi. Akindi has, is intimately connected with something we, I've mentioned earlier, which is the Greek Arabic translation movement. He didn't himself translate any of the works. In fact, none of these people were actually translators, but he organized and coordinated the group, uh, the, a group of translators who were turn, taking Greek texts and turning them into Arabic translations. So he's often considered to be the first philosopher in the Islamic world or the first Arabic philosopher because he was involved in the translation movement. And then we have a sequence of other philosophers who are recognizably inspired by this Greek tradition. And in fact, we could say that they're all Aristotelians. So they read Aristotle very carefully. In the case of Kendi, Farabi, and Averroes, they even write commentaries on his works. And these are the four most famous philosophers in, from the Islamic world, at least in Europe and North America. Um, there's a fifth person who's dear to Tanli's heart, who's Ghazali, Al-Ghazali, who has the best death date of, every, of any figure in the history of philosophy that I'm aware of, which I, I'm very grateful to him for this. So at least in the, in the AD calendar, he died in 1111. Thank you. So easy to, so easy to remember. Um, and he's not, he's not usually seen as a philosopher, but he's often included in sort of minimal surveys of the philosophy, of philosophy in the Islamic world uh, because he's famous for having criticized Avicenna. So that's pretty much it. So if you crack open like a survey book of the history of Western philosophy, like by Bertrand Russell, say, there's a famous um, history of philosophy by him or by Frederick Copleston, or even if, even if you look at a survey book on medieval philosophy that wasn't written very recently, if there's any coverage of philosophy in the Islamic world at all, it will just cover these five guys. That's it. Now, this is clearly wrong. <laughs> and one of the ways that it's wrong is that, for a start, it leaves out some super famous people who also lived in the Islamic world and who are taken very seriously in other contexts, namely the context of working on the history of Jewish philosophy. So one of the things that I, that I didn't like about the way that this subject was treated um, and that I tried to do differently in the podcast and the book is that Jewish philosophy and Muslim philosophy or Islamic philosophy were treated as two separate developments and there are different books about them as if the two things are completely unrelated. So you might have a chapter about the influence of Muslim philosophers on Maimonides, for example, but generally speaking, um, it was sort of, it's, it's, it seems that people think that Jewish philosophy has a completely separate trajectory from Islamic philosophy. But this is just not true because famous Jewish philosophers like Saadia Gaon, who died in 942 and lived in Iraq, he actually came from Egypt but moved to Iraq, uh, Iraq. Maimonides, who was born in Spain and moved to Egypt, they are very intricately engaging with the, the philosophical culture around them, which of course is the same philosophical culture as you find in 
Muslim philosophers of the same period. And there's just a massive kind of transfer of knowledge and ideas from Muslim philosophical works into Jewish philosophical works to the point where it's, it's really pointless to try to understand medieval Jewish philosophy without putting it in the context of what was going on in more generally in philosophy of the Islamic world. It should be said that the influence here is almost entirely one way. So what I mean by that is that Muslims influence Jews, but Jews almost never influence Muslims. And the reason for that is partially that Jews sometimes wrote in Judeo-Arabic. So basically what that means is it's Arabic, but in Jewish script. So it was essentially like a coded way of writing that made the text inaccessible to uh, non-readers, of to, to people who couldn't read Hebrew letters. That's an exaggeration, but it's part of the explanation. Um, so the, the standard way of dealing with the subject was to look at these few famous Aristotelian Muslims and Jew, a few famous Jews, but separately. And um, for the rest of the time, I want to tell you about three things this leaves out. So there's a kind of chronological problem, which is that people tend to stop at the end of the 12th century when they shouldn't. There's a sort of ecumenical problem, which is that people leave out Christian philosophy entirely in that way of doing it. And the third thing is that people leave out, and this is the most controversial thing I'm going to say, is that in my view, Islamic theology or kalam should be included in the history of philosophy. There are other things that this traditional way of doing it leaves out. So for example, um, Islamic jurisprudence, which produces texts that are often philosophically interesting, uh, it uh, leaves out Islamic physical sciences, or maybe, I don't know why I have Islamic there, but physical sciences like medicine, astronomy, astrology, alchemy, uh, which are very much part of the development of philosophy in the Islamic world, or optics, which was um, a field of great achievement in the Islamic Middle Ages and was uh, pursued by philosophers. And also, sort of at the other end of the spectrum, Sufism and in the Jewish tradition, Kabbalah, these mystical traditions, in my opinion, also need to be integrated into our understanding of the history of philosophy in the Islamic world. I don't have time to talk about these, but if you want, we can talk about any of them afterwards. Okay, but the, the, so the three things I am going to talk about are these three that are numbered here on this slide. So firstly, philosophy of the later Islamic world, different map. Here are the three later Islamic empires, sometimes called the gunpowder empires. And if you look at, by the way, you can, if you look at this map and this map that I started with, notice how small Europe is in compared, compared to the shaded regions on these two maps. I probably don't have to tell this audience this, but I always belabor this point when I'm talking to European audiences that we think of the entire history of philosophy as happening just in this area of Europe and sort of assume that very little would have happened in this massive empire or several empires that lasted over many uh, centuries. And this is uh, clearly absurd <laughs> and it's also false. Now, one thing that you'll hear people say quite frequently, even people who take philosophy in the Islamic world very seriously, is that is generated by the Greek Arabic translation movement in around the ninth century, and it ends around the end of the 12th century. And there's a kind of stupid version of this idea, and there's a smarter version of this idea. Both versions are wrong, but I'll tell them both to you anyway. So the stupid version is that it's all Al-Ghazali's fault. 
and therefore, in some way, all Tonelli is false. Uh, so don't worry, I'm saying this is false. So the idea would be, oh, well, Avicenna is this great, uh, by the way, just to make sure everyone knows, Avicenna is in Nasina, Averroes is in Rusht, if anyone knows. Uh, the reason I say that is that I, I, um, if I, t I will take the time to tell you an amusing anecdote. Uh, I was appearing on the radio a few years ago when I still lived in London to talk about Maimonides, the aforementioned uh, Jewish philosopher here. And my downstairs neighbors were Jewish. So I thought they might want to listen. And I told them I was going to do, do this. And so I was talking to the, the wife of the couple and saying, yeah, I'm going to be on the radio talking about Maimonides. And she said, who's that? And I said, Maimonides. And she said, I've never heard of him. And I said, you must have heard of him. He's the most important Jewish scholar in history. And how can you not have heard of him? And she shrugged. And I said, have you heard of Rambam? Which is his honorific acronym, Rabbi Moses Ben Maimon. And she said, oh, Rambam. So that's why I always make sure to mention that Avicenna is the same person as Ibn Sina. Um, so... Anyway, uh, so the stupid version of this story is that Ghazali attacked Avicenna, who was the most sophisticated Muslim philosopher. And after Ghazali's attack, no one kind of had the heart to keep going with this philosophy business, except for Averroes in Rusht over in Islamic Spain. And he has this project of commenting on Aristotle, and he's the last person to do serious philosophy in the Islamic world. And after that, they sort of shut up shop and only do theology and Sufism. So um, the reason why this is a stupid <laughs> version of the story is that it effectively projects onto the history of philosophy in the Islamic world the interests and concerns of European historians who were only interested traditionally in uh, Arabic philosophical texts because they were translated into Latin. So you have to imagine you're a historian of philosophy and what you're really interested in is, say, Aquinas. So what you want to know about, as far as philosophy in the Islamic world is concerned, is the figures who Aquinas could read, and that would be like Avicenna and Averroes, because they were translated into Latin. And it's true, they had a huge influence on Latin Christian medieval philosophy in Europe. But you would never be interested in any of these people, and these are philosophers who lived and worked um, either contemporaneously with or after Averroes, in many cases long after Averroes, you wouldn't be interested in, for example, Fakhreddin Arazi, who's a, an incredibly interesting uh, thinker who I'm actually going to be leading a seminar about on Thursday here. Um, you wouldn't be interested in him because his works, despite being massively extant, I mean, we have a whole shelf of Fakhreddin Arazi to read, that we can read in the original Arabic, and they're very, very sophisticated. They engage with all the major areas of Avicenna's philosophy, but it wasn't translated into Latin, and so he's effectively invisible from the point of this kind of, from the point of view of this sort of Eurocentric approach to philosophy in the Islamic world. And he's just the start. So you have um, Fakhreddin Arazi. He's an Asharite uh, theologian, also a commentator on Avicenna. Then you have Nasir al-Din Atuzi, who is a scientist and astronomer who reacted critically against Fakhreddin and wrote another commentary on Avicenna in order to explain that Razi's commentary was all wrong. You have Ibn Khaldun, the most important historian, um, or at least theorist of history, 
in the Islamic tradition. You have the thinkers in Shiraz around just on the sort of cusp of the development into this um, Safavid period. Um, you have the greatest thinker of the Safavid period, Mullah Sadra. You have Turkish um, Ottoman Empire thinkers like Khatib Chalavi. You have figures from Muslim uh, India, like Dada Shiku, who's someone Janardin has published on, and um, Khaira Badi. And you also, of course, have philosophers from the colonialist period and the 20th century. Um, one of the things, the interesting things that happens in the 20th century is that we start to see more female philosophers in the Islamic world, like Fatima Malanisi, who just died a few years ago. So this, and of course, this is a very selective list. This basically is the number of names I could fit on the slide. Um, and in the podcast where I talk about philosophy in the later Islamic world, I spend something like 25 episodes going through all the thinkers and developments that you get after the supposed death of philosophy in the Islamic world. Um, so clearly, this is a, a, a kind of um, a sort of myth and legend. And the idea that Ghazali somehow signals a death knell to philosophy is just unsustainable. There is, as I promised, a slightly more intelligent version of this kind of decline narrative which is that things were going really well until the Mongols turned up. And it is true that if you see a Mongol horde coming, that is bad news. And things are about to change very fast. But as I always like to say, the key to the Mongol invasion is surviving the first 15 minutes. And it's not as if Islamic civilization was entirely wiped out by the Mongols. And in fact, um, a figure like Tuzi, the second person on this list, actually worked for a Mongol warlord and, was, and his astro astronomical observatory was funded by him. So um, both because civilization recovered and certainly by the time you get to the so-called gunpowder empires, you have these vast, very sophisticated, very intellectually um, advanced cultures in the Islamic world. Um, but even during the Mongol period, you have a lot of philosophical activity. So it's, it seems more kind of intelligent to say, well, maybe the decline is because of the Mongol invasions. But actually, the really intelligent thing to think is that there was no decline and that the decline is an illusion created by a Eurocentric narrative of what the Islamic world could contribute to philosophy, namely to, to read Aristotle for a few centuries while medieval Europe was unable to do so. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing, and here I'll be briefer, is that there aren't only Muslim and Jewish thinkers in the Islamic world. There are also Christian thinkers. And in fact, something I've already mentioned several times would have been impossible without Christians. And this is the very Greek Arabic translation movement that supposedly generated and gave rise to philosophy in the Islamic world in the first place. Um, the reasons for this are complicated, but to oversimplify, if you're a very rich patron in the early ninth century, and you're looking for someone who can read Greek and translate Greek into fluent Arabic, you're going to need a Christian because the Greek speakers are Syrian Christians who had continued reading philosophical texts in Syrian monasteries during the rise of the Byzantine empire and, and Syria had then been conquered by um, the Muslims, as you know. Um, and so this is basically the population from which you can draw Greek Arabic dual speakers. So a, a really important figure here would be Hunayn ibn Ishaq and his son Ishaq ibn Hunayn. 
easy to confuse. Um, Hunayn is the most important translator of the Dr. Galen, and Ishaq is the most important translator of Aristotle, and they're both Christians. Um, interestingly, in the 10th century, we then have a, a, what at the time was a very prominent group of philosophers in the city of Baghdad, uh, which included one prominent Muslim member, namely the aforementioned Al-Farabi, who's quite famous. But all of his colleagues, his teachers and his students were Christians. And they included someone named Yahya ibn Adi, who was probably more famous in the 10th century than Farabi was for being an expert in Aristotelian philosophy. And by the way, we have works by all of these people. So it's not like we can't study them. Um, even later on, we have Christian philosophers, even philosophers who continue writing in Syriac rather than in Arabic. Um, so a good example here is Bar Hebraeus, who was a colleague of Altuzi's at that astronomical observatory that was paid for by the Mongols. So you can see that just as with Jewish and Muslim thought, there's an intertwining of Muslim and Christian thought throughout this period. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is that Yahya Nadi, this Aristotelian philosopher from Baghdad, wrote a, an exchange of letters with a Jewish intellectual where the Jewish guy is asking him questions about Aristotle and Ibn Adi is very politely responding to the questions of this Jewish fellow Aristotelian who seems to be more of an amateur. So Ibn Adi is kind of telling him how, he, how it is. But on the other hand, Ibn Adi also wrote a refutation of Al-Kindi's philosophical attack on the Trinity. So you can see that there's this kind of triangulation between the three faiths going on um, it, in, the, in what's usually considered to be the kind of high point of um, philosophy in the Islamic world, namely the 10th century. Third and last point is the most contentious one, um, namely Kalam. So Kalam is actually even contentious how to translate Kalam. So as you know, it means word, and it's not exactly clear why systematic rational theology in Arabic was called kalam in the tradition. It was already called kalam back then. And there are even texts which raise this question and ask, why, are, why is this thing that we're doing called kalam? One thought was that it's because it's the study of God's word. One thought is that it's because they engaged in verbose arguments with each other, so lots of words flying back and forth. Uh, it's kind of unclear. But in, in any case, uh, I just translate kalam as Islamic theology or rational theology. Now, it's very standard to have a strong, to think of a strong opposition between philosophy on the one hand and theology or kalam on the other hand. And a lot of my colleagues disagree with me about this, whereas they would probably agree with me about the first two points. Uh, so, for example, one of the most eminent scholars in our field, Dmitry Gutas, certainly would not agree with me that Kalam is philosophy or is a kind of philosophy. Um, and there's a good reason for that, which is that many of the historical figures themselves draw this contrast. People like Farabi and Averroes say there's what the theologians do, and it's defective in all kinds of ways. So they argue in these defective ways. Um, their arguments are weak and unconvincing. They can't prove anything. And we, by contrast, with the help of Aristotle, can prove the truths of philosophy. So there's philosophy on the one hand and kalam on the other hand. And this has led people to exclude kalam from the history of philosophy. 
Another reason is if you pick up a work of Kalam, especially an early one, you probably won't think it looks very philosophical. So a lot of the early stuff looks like a lot of debating about sort of the use of words. Um, there's a lot of quotation of Hadith and Quran and argumentation about how best to interpret these quotations. And it doesn't leap off the page as being philosophical. However, I submit to you that Kalam is part of the history of philosophy in the Islamic world. And I have a couple of arguments for this. Um, one is that if we sort of imagine things having unfolded differently so that there had never been this Greek Arabic translation movement and there had been no Aristotelian tradition. If we were then to ask ourselves, well, what were the philosophical texts in the Islamic world? The answer would be obvious. It would be theology. And we might even then say, oh, of course, because in Christian medieval Europe, most of the interesting philosophers are theologians. They worked in the theology faculty and they, wrote, they even wrote works with the word theology in the title, like Aquinas, Summa Theologiae, Scotus, Occam, Aquinas, all of their most important works were either on logic or on theology. Also, people like Anselm um, or Eriugena would have probably thought of themselves as theologians rather than philosophers, or at least they wouldn't have seen these two things as being antithetical. So it's, I think in a way we, we too easily believe the story that's fed to us by people like Farabi and, Av and Averroes um, and sort of swallow their line that there's an absolute opposition between uh, philosophy and Kalam. And that's just concerning the early period. When it comes to the later period, and this has to do with what I was just saying here, a lot of these figures would probably be considered to be theologians. So just to take the first guy I mentioned, Fakhreddin Arazi, as I said, he's an Asharite theologian, but he engages in great, great detail with Avicenna. He quotes arguments from Avicenna and then says, here are seven ways to refute Avicenna. And all of the refutations are philosophical refutations of Avicenna. He doesn't just sort of quote the Quran at him. And that's true for most of these figures. I mean, Ibn Khaldun is not a theologian, um, but most of the other figures on this list could in some sense be called theologians, but their works are full of philosophical argumentation. And, they, and the arguments are about, even within sort of traditional kalam, a lot of the arguments are about core philosophical issues like free will, moral responsibility, atomism, and so on. Sophia Vassalou, who's there, wrote a whole book about moral responsibility in kalam. And if you read her book, it's a book about philosophy. I don't know if you would agree with that. But I think it's a philosophy book. Um, a, a, a parenthetical note here is that this actually gives us some reason to doubt something that I've said several times, which is this idea that philosophy in the Islamic world was somehow generated or born out of the Greek Arabic translation movement. Um, that's not necessarily right because early Kalam predates the Greek Arabic translation movement. I prefer to think of the history of philosophy in the Islamic world as, as I said, be, being constituted out of numerous traditions, for example, Jewish philosophy, but leaving that aside for the moment, the, the, to me, the main line of Islamic philosophy or philosophy in the Islamic world is the Greek-inspired Aristotelian tradition and, and Kalam developing alongside each other and in competition with each other. And then after Avicenna, in part because of Al-Ghazali's criticism, coalescing into one unified, still very complicated tradition where you have Mutakalimun, 
taking Avicenna seriously, using Avicenna's terminology, engaging with his arguments, agreeing with him about some things, disagreeing with him about others. And to me, the real change here is that Avicenna becomes the main point of reference rather than Aristotle, and that Kalam and Falsafa uh, become sort of fused into this hybrid tradition, which is really what later philosophy in the Islamic world is for the most part. Okay, so in conclusion, why is this a Gaul a good idea? So why is it, why is it worth our time to not only do Kindi, Farabi, Avicenna, and Averroes? So for one thing, as I said before, we understand these major figures better by understanding the minor figures. So to give you an example, if you're studying Al-Farabi, shouldn't you know something about all of these Christian philosophers in Baghdad he was working together with who were cooperating uh, in writing commentaries on Aristotle, for example? Not doing that would be the equivalent of working on Kant without ever looking at any of the philosophers who lived at the same time as Kant. So that's one thing. Another thing is that, of course, this later tradition is full of new philosophical arguments, new ideas, new ways of specifying and refuting Avicenna's system that we would miss out on if we ended in 1200 after Averroes and the critique by Ghazali. And, of, and maybe the last thing is the most obvious thing, which is that if we tell the story of philosophy in the Islamic world as a continuing unbroken tradition, which is really what it is, despite the horrifying threats of Al-Ghazali and the Mongol hordes. What we really have is actually a very continuous tradition, which marches on um, constantly seeing innovation, but also continuity from generation to generation. We can really tell a single story from the eighth, ninth century, all the way down to the 21st century and try to give a, a story of the history of philosophy in the Islamic world that gives better background to contemporary Islamic thought, which I hasten to say is not my field. I mean, I'm really, a, to the extent that I'm an expert on anything, it's more this earlier tradition, but it seemed clear to me from doing the podcast that 20th century intellectuals in the Islamic world were responding very intricately to a lot of these figures that I've mentioned. And so um, really, if we're interested, which of course we are, in understanding the contemporary world, we have to understand the whole history of philosophy in the Islamic world, and not only what happened in the so-called classical period. Okay, thanks very much. <clears throat>